Price, that's the number one technical indicator. You do best by investing for the longer term. If you can't explain what the business is doing, then that is a huge red flag. Some technological change is going to put you out of business. It really is a genuinely extraordinary situation. Welcome back. I'm Hayden Brain, and you're listening to Opto Sessions, where we interview the top traders and investors from around the world, uncovering their secrets to success. Ali Ehrman is ARK Invest's genomic revolution analyst, responsible for the company's research on gene editing, DNA sequencing, stem cell technologies, and immunotherapy. As of September this year, ARK's AUM stood at a colossal $42.4 billion, spearheaded by investing legend and household name, Kathy Wood. To speak to ARK's genomics analysts, particularly as a global pandemic thrusts biotechnology into the spotlight, was a huge privilege, and Ali doesn't disappoint. We discussed the genomic revolution, how the sequencing of the first human genome cost $1 billion and took 13 years, whereas today, that same process costs anywhere between $100 and $1,000 and takes just one to two days. Ali explains the transformative convergence of next-generation DNA sequencing, artificial intelligence, and CRISPR gene editing, before we break down exactly how ARC picks their genomic stocks. Enjoy the episode. Welcome to the podcast, Ali. It's great to have you on the show. So how are things in Miami right now? Things are good. The weather is uh, turning a little colder, although I guess uh, Miami's version of cold is is not um, maybe so uh, synonymous with your version of cold. Mm. Uh, it's in <laughs> London, right? Yeah, yeah, we're based in London. It's, it's about 12 degrees right now. So yeah, not particularly nice out there. <laughs> yeah, so so little different versions of cold, but it's kind of gloomy today. So uh, I feel like I'm in London. <laughs> <laughs> Good. All right, then. Well, I'd like to start by asking a question that won't necessarily flow chronologically, but it will give listeners an early indication of one of the focuses of today's interview. Um, so firstly, why and to what extent, more importantly, is next generation DNA sequencing, NGS for short, the driving force behind the genomic revolution, in your opinion? I think one of the reasons that NGS is so important is because it allows us to understand sort of what's going on genetically, our genetic makeup, or what's going on in the body. So, I mean, we'll probably talk a lot more in depth about some of these things, but it helps with precision medicine, which can in turn help with clinical trial participation uh, and retention of patients on clinical trials. It helps us understand what therapeutics are needed to treat disease. Uh, it helps us accelerate maybe gene editing to figure out what a disease is being caused by and then how do we treat that disease. So really, it's sort of the catalyst, um, you know, for the entire revolution. Yeah, great. And as you say, I think we're going to come back to some of those topics and try and get on uh under the hood of some of those topics uh, later on in the interview. But if we take a step back now, uh, I just want a better understanding of your career history today, just to set the re- rest of the interview in context. So your early career, I've done a bit of research just via LinkedIn. I think so you spend three years at the Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center before another three years. Uh, I think it was at the Montefiore Health System as research oncology manager. So firstly, why specialize in oncology research? So, you know, when you're younger, people say, oh, I wanted to be a fireman. I wanted to be a pirate. 
I wanted to be in medicine uh, <laughs> from a very, very early age. Uh, I was pre-med uh, at McGill University. I'm, I'm from mm-hmm. Montreal um, and I really wanted to be a doctor. And so I was, you know, first semester physics, chem, bio, uh, you know, calculus. Um, I also took that semester. So it was needless to say, not a fun semester, but mm-hmm. the amount that I was learning was, was just really awesome and, and understanding more, I guess that bio session uh, or that bio class was more so about animals mostly, but understanding sort of the human body was, was really fascinating to me. Um, at that time, my grandmother actually got really sick. Uh, we were really close and she got lung cancer and I was just really frustrated with um, the medical system. And I felt that there was a strong downstream medical approach, whereas I really wanted to be involved in an upstream intervention or an upstream approach, mm-hmm. meaning that let's help people before they get sick and, and try to not have them get sick, as opposed to treating people when they were already sick. So my grandmother went to the doctor, um, we found out she had lung cancer, and there were very few months to live after that. And that was shocking to me, although you know, not someone who didn't read and know a lot about medicine. It's just, I guess, seeing it firsthand was really traumatic for me. Um, I thought that a, a good pivot from that would be to be in research. Um, and so I focused on epidemiology and biostatistics with a public health approach. Um, and how do we understand disease incidences over time? How do we understand, you know, computationally, but um, also through other methods, how we can help people earlier. So, you know, some work I did included some work in Africa where we looked at why are people having, you know, a lot of rates of lung cancer there. And we found that um, one of the reasons was because of how they were cooking. Uh, and so they were using this particular coal uh, that actually caused lung cancer. And so sometimes there's these few tweaks that you can do that can actually really help Um, from a public health perspective. And like I said, that sort of more upstream approach. Um, So that was really fascinating to do. Of course, when you find these type of things, sometimes they're easier uh, said than done, easier to implement than, uh, or harder to implement than you think they might be. And so we had a lot of resistance in terms of implementation. Uh, Sometimes people get comfortable with the methods that they're currently using. And so it's difficult to divert. Um, I went to Sloan Kettering and to Montefiore eventually uh, to focus at Sloan on lung cancer. Uh, I really, as I said, wanted to do this sort of upstream approach. So how do we come from research and how do we figure out how to help people before they get sick, but also um, ultimately in memory of my grandmother um, and to help people not go through what what my family went through? Yeah, absolutely. I guess that was a reason for asking the question. I anticipated we didn't discuss it before the call but there might be an event something to do with your family that inspired that that kind of vocation I guess um and a focus on oncology um which which is incredibly fascinating I think it it helps to provide the rest of the the interview and contact if we just then progress I guess to your next career move if we just work chronologically through your your career history today I think on paper at least again to someone that's external to, to your life. We've, we've not spoken too much before. It looked, I guess, on paper somewhat incongruous, at least from an outsider's perspective. So why then in 2017 did you move to IBM to become senior research program manager? Yeah, so I think the reason was that I became really interested in, in, and I think this is kind of a, if you knew me better, probably something that just I'm always trying to do is how do you create more of an impact? Um, and, uh, that's, you know, really challenging and also something I put a lot of pressure on myself. And so I felt like in academia, 
the model was kind of broken. So I wanted to be either at the bench doing some kind of groundbreaking research where I could have a direct impact on patients, um, or I wanted to be seeing patients. And sort of the higher up the ladder I felt I was going, I felt, you know, you were doing things, or at least I was doing things that I didn't want to be doing as much. Um, so, you know, talking about funding, which is funny um, because where I am now, uh, but looking for funding, thinking about grants. Um, and so I really wanted to be somewhere where I felt that I could make changes. And so Sloan Kettering was actually the training partner uh, for IBM Watson. Um, and I was like, how can I make these immediate changes? What can I do to be more impactful? Um, the idea of the intersection between medicine and technology felt like a really good option for me. IBM Watson had a lot of promise at the time. Uh, it was this idea of how can we help patients more and in a more streamlined way. So an example that I could give there is Watson for Oncology. Uh, that's an AI-based software that could help doctors with decision support. So it was a decision support tool. Um, you know, the challenge here is that doctors just can't keep up with the current literature. There, I think there was some statistic, and I might be butchering it, but that you'd literally need to read for 24 or 48 hours straight to be up to date on all the current literature in your specific specialty. And of course, that's just not feasible. So because of that, you could use Watson, which was this AI-powered software tool. And you know, AI is such an umbrella term now, but um, I'm going to use that, uh, obviously, inclusive of machine learning or any deep learning. Um, and basically, Watson could parse the literature and pull any of these necessary articles about new treatments. Um, and you could actually have a patient-specific attributes or conditions put into this software, and it would kind of spit out a recommendation in red, yellow, and green. So green is obviously go. These look good. Yellow um, is like, hmm, maybe think about that a little more. Red is obviously like, hmm, maybe pause for a second. And then it would also you know, uh, it would also pair that with some interesting research that had come out. Um, and, and what I think is so fascinating about this is that it was an approach to help doctors treating patients, which I loved. Um, anything to do with streamlining and helping patients is always fantastic. Um, that's not as much of an upstream approach, which is something obviously that really interests me. But another asset that they had there was uh, Watson for clinical trials. Um, and we know that about 5% of cancer patients who are eligible for clinical trials actually participate. There's a discrepancy there in the amount of patients that go on clinical trials. There's also a discrepancy there in the demographic of the patients that go on clinical trials. And I am all about, you know, creating that diversification. And it's so important for clinical trials because it means that the people who therapies are tested on um, are going to be the ones that we know how they do with the therapy. So if you have this sort of non-representative sample of patients that are going on therapies, um, those are going to be the patients that we know how um, they're treated. And so we need to know how all drugs affect all people. Um, and so Watson created this system that could look for patients who were eligible for clinical trials. And so you may be able to find patients, um, you know, of a particular demographic, of a particular mutation, uh, in a particular area. And so I was really fascinated by that. And so maybe the promise of, of what that AI software could offer wasn't uh, fully actualized, but I think the idea of using AI and the intersection of that with medicine is extremely promising. Yeah, um, that made me think that that intersection uh, and that uh, combination, I suppose, of a biotech and healthcare 
experience early on in your career with a tech experience slightly later on. I wondered whether those two in conjunction actually provide quite a useful grounding to then apply your research experience, but within an investment context, obviously, in your current role. Would that be a fair assessment? Yeah, I think that's a really fair assessment. I think, you know, ARC is a really unique uh, place to work. It's a phenomenal place to work, but it's also really interesting because, um, you know, we hire analysts that uh, don't have necessarily this you know, strong financial experience, but instead they have this deep domain expertise. Um, So I think it it was really helpful to have this business and academic experience because it helped me to better understand, you know, companies that would work or not work based on, you know, certain factors of, of being in the business, which I think being in tech really helped, but understanding that deep tech, I think is also really important. And then obviously from the academic experience, understanding that, you know, important scientific perspective um, and having that domain expertise is really important as well. So uh, I think based on our strategy, it worked really well, but also I think having that, that deep domain expertise in both kind of the tech and the science and that intersection uh, was also really helpful. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, after the IBM role, I think you spent three years running your own consultancy before then joining ARC as genomic revolution analyst. So firstly, how did the role at ARC come about? Do you remember when you first heard of it or considered the role? Yes, it is actually one of my favorite stories. Uh, so I did consulting because I was working on a startup. Uh, it was a monetization startup play uh, for data, but also, um, you know, the more you get to know me, the more you'll understand this, but democratizing data and also democratizing who gets paid for their own data. And so that's actually still ongoing. Um, I I help the the company now, but I'm not as deeply involved as I used to be, as you can imagine. Um, (laughs) Our is a full-time job and then some, so not not able to always be available, but uh, love to hear about how it's doing and love the idea of, um, you know, creating better data sets, which can ultimately lead to better um, input and uh, output from, you know, those data sets and better analytics and, you know, better insights, though, really important. Uh, How I got hired at ARC. So I started to get interested in the idea of funding uh, as I was thinking about my own startup and the trajectory there. And, you know, we were starting to talk about who would fund this idea. Um, I went to a finance event. It was my first one. And I met a great guy there. His name is Jason Minglegreen. Uh, And he, as we're talking and, you know, I'm talking to him about kind of what I'm looking for, uh, he said, you know, you are the perfect analyst for ARK Invest. And at the time, I, I didn't even know what ARK Invest was. Uh, and he said, you know, I really think you should pursue this. And not only did Jason say that, but he's actually someone who takes action when he thinks something is important. And so he actually was the one who submitted my CV. Um, he followed up. Uh, that was to Simon Barnett, who is my co-analyst. And Uh, Simon said, you know, let's go for a coffee. And I was kind of hesitant, to be honest with you. I had never thought about being uh, in the financial world. And I said, you know, okay, we can go for a coffee, but uh, there's some hesitation here. And he said, no worries, let's just grab a coffee. So we went for a coffee. Um, We talk about this story pretty often. We ended up staying there for, you know, three, four hours, uh, just talking about genomics, its impact, our experience. Um, and, you know, I'm happy to say we're, we're really good friends to date, but 
But he said to me, he was like, when I met you, I just knew you were going to be the next genomics analyst at ARC. And at the time I was like, wow, that's, that's pretty, you had great foresight. Cause I did <laughs> not know that. Um, wow. So, you know, he was like, well, I'm going to put you to the next round. And I was like, but this wasn't an interview. And he was like, well, it was. <laughs> <laughs> so I, you know, went through the, through the process and ultimately obviously got the offer. Um, and I remember being so unsure about uh, this transition. And, you know, as we talked about sort of my career trajectory, uh, you can imagine that, you know, when I started, I was, you know, wanted to be a researcher, wanted to be deep into the medicine and, and help patients and going into funding felt really foreign to me. Um, but I'm so glad I did because I think that being able to directly have an impact um, with the team on who can get funding for their projects is a really, really big responsibility and one that I don't take lightly, um, but one that, you know, is is really impactful to be able to say, hey, I think that this company is doing something really interesting. Let's think more about it. Um, and let's think more about the industry as a whole and how can we differentiate ourselves? And so every day I'm just learning more and more. And I remember that when I joined ARC, I said to one of the other analysts, I said, well, how many hours a day do you work? Or how many hours a week do you work? And he said at the time, this was Yassine, our crypto analyst. And he said at the time, mm. you know, well, we work all the time. Uh, and he didn't say it in like, a, oh, we're working 24-7 kind of thing. It was the analysts that work at ARC, and I can't speak for other firms, but maybe true for there as well, we are so passionate about what we do that it's our interest. And so the books I read, the articles I'm reading online, the podcasts I listen to, you know, so much as like I was watching a documentary on Netflix last night, it was about gene editing. So, so much of what we do is quote unquote work, but it really blurs the line of, you know, what you're interested in. Um, and what you spend your time on and what you do for work. So I find that the line's definitely blurred for me, but it's also so much of what I'm interested in. So I would say that having this passion and being able to have an outlet for it in a creative way uh, and in a very supported way has been really incredible. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, that comes across in all the content that you guys put out. Uh, and obviously, it's paying dividends for ARC as well as a company um, since, since they implemented that strategy. Um, and actually, if we talk about the company's transformation since you took the position, I think, which was back in Feb 2020. So how, how if you can, do you sum up the journey thus far? What are, what are the key differences between the business now and at the start of last year when you joined? So it's, it's really funny. Uh, our, it's a very humble firm. That sounds like a weird thing to say, I guess. But um, you know, heads down, doing a ton of research. Uh, there's been growth in terms of, you know, as you mentioned, but but no comment on the direct numbers. But you know, there's there's been growth in terms of hiring and in terms of excitement. Um, but but not much has changed from from a strategy perspective, um, and not much has changed from a research and I guess you know acceleration perspective either. So we're continuing to do heads down research. Um, we're continuing to you know, expedite new content, um, you know, good research, um, new ways of providing content, new ways of engaging in the investor community, um, but also hopefully, you know, creating funding for those companies who really need it. Um, and also those ones that will create a, a large difference in the uh, biopharmaceutical space. 
Yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, I think that's a really good job of describing and introducing you to the listener and to myself as well. Uh, and that will set the rest of the interview in context, as I said. But now let's use this juncture to focus in on genomics and return to the subject we referenced at the start of the interview, which was next generation sequencing. So the term next generation DNA sequencing is used pretty frequently, I mean, throughout ARC literature when I was having a look online prior to the interview. So how has DNA sequencing advanced in the past 20 years? How transformative has has that industry been over the last two decades, if we pick that time frame? Yeah, so I think, you know, a good way to start here is going to be, what does ARC look for when they're looking, you know, at a company? So one of the things we look for is, does this technology have a precipitative cost decline? And is it disruptive? You know, we focused on disruptive innovation. And so those two things are quite important to us. We know that DNA sequencing certainly has had a precipitative cost decline, certainly has been disruptive in so many ways. And I'm sure we'll get into a lot of those ways a little later on. But essentially, it went from being $100,000 to sub-1,000 in basically two decades, which is one of the most rapid declines I've ever seen. Um, It's probably more than any technology anywhere. Uh, The curve is decreasing still, but maybe not as fast as it was in 2009. Um, That's going to be because before that, it was sort of this first generation sequencing. And as we know, you know, new tech is important and we need to continue to iterate to get better and better. Um, In 2009 is also when Illumina acquired a company called Selexa. Um, They had the ability for, you know, scalability to scale at at a quicker rate Um, good product, manufacturing, other factors as well. And they really created a better product um, and therefore sort of the cost decline really proliferated um, and performance obviously increased as well. There was also a lot of competition at that time because it really wasn't clear who the sort of leader of the pack would be, right? Thermo Fisher was there, there were others as well. Um, So Illumina was really trying to capture that market share by lowering its prices This could also explain why costs are kind of slowing down now because Illumina kind of has that monopoly um, and therefore they're not really incentivized to continue that cost decline. Um, But let's look at the bigger picture, right? Those are kind of in the weed details. So the bigger picture is $1 million per NGS uh, sample is going to be cost prohibitive, right? We're not going to have a patient come into clinic and sequence for a million dollars. It's just not going to happen, right? We can't do that on a per patient basis, right? That's what we're talking about. But now we're seeing that sequencing can go between $100 to $1,000. So now is really a time where sequencing becomes affordable and therefore it becomes clinically meaningful to the patient, which is ultimately, as we talked about before, the most important thing, right? We want to deliver meaningful insights to patients that can actually provide, you know, potential cures or at least real therapies that can help patients. Um, and hopefully real insights that can help them as well. So as cost declines, there's really this inflection in demand, and this could also increase adoption, right? As as the price declines, well, then we can actually use it um, on patients. So, you know, we believe that the number of whole human genome sequencing per year will scale up about 110% at an annual rate. And that means that it's going to go from sequencing about 2.6 million in 2019 to about 105 million in 2024. And this is going to happen because of a myriad of things, but things like molecular diagnostics, liquid biopsies, tumor profiling, germline testing, immuno-oncology, and prenatal testing. And maybe to bring it down a notch, let's go into one of those examples. So if we talk about immuno-oncology, 
if we use NGS or next generation sequencing for clinical trials, um, essentially this could increase the demand for sequencing, but it also could allow for better trial participation and also more targeted therapies. And of course, because you're getting better patients for your particular trials, we could accelerate regulatory timelines. We could see better response rates. I mean, there's a whole myriad of things that could really, really, really helpful. So, okay, we, we talked about a lot there. We kind of went deep into the weeds, but let's kind of do the 30,000 foot view, right? Why does this matter? What are we talking about? Sequencing the first human genome costs about $1 billion, and it took about 13 years to complete. Today, it costs hundreds to thousands, and it takes just one to two days. So you can imagine how much progress we've made and also how important those insights could actually be to patients, caregivers, physicians, pharma companies. So yeah, it's, it's pretty exciting. Well, incredibly exciting. I think that's the perfect way to sum up the impact that this innovation, this technology can have. I read in uh, ARC's uh, Bigger Ideas report, which comes out every year, um, and it made reference to personalized medicine and how NGS can actually facilitate the personalization of medicine. Is that a fair reflection of what this technology can do? Will we see fully personalized in kind of quotes or inverted commas medicine in the not too distant future? Or are we already seeing it perhaps? Yeah, I, I think that is fair to say that um, medicine will be more personalized, um, certainly. So clinical trials are definitely becoming more efficient as well because we're using next-generation sequencing. So investigators are really able to find patients that are more likely to enroll and respond to therapy, as I mentioned before. Um, and this, in turn, will make the drug more likely to get approved. Maybe there'll be an accelerated approval, as I mentioned, because finding patients could be easier and it also could be quicker. And that also helps with that accelerated approval. So half of clinical trials and actually 80% of oncology trials now use this genetic information to recruit patients. So you can see how important it is, especially to oncology, um, since 80% of those trials are actually using this. Um, and we really believe that companies who use next-generation sequencing to recruit patients um, are going to have fewer failed drugs. And they'll also increase capital efficiency because you won't have as many unsuccessful trials. And so you'll be able to use that money towards more commercialized products as opposed to failed trials. So, for example, if you look at our past research, we've seen that genetic diagnostics can lower trial failure rates by about 45% in phase three lung cancer trials, which is pretty incredible. So, you know, at a 0% failure rate reduction, you would have about 28 failed drugs, and that would be a total cost of $720 million, uh, in R&D in U.S. dollars. But then if you improve efficiency, okay, you know, for example, we're using next-generation sequencing now. Let's say we give a 25% failure rate reduction. Then that 28 failed drugs goes down to nine failed drugs. And then your cost drops from 720 million in R&D to 350 million in total cost of R&D in US dollars. Wow. So obviously, as you can see, next generation sequencing could really do many things. It, it could facilitate this cost decline because of this trial failure rate reductions. And also, as we talked about, this personalized medicine, which is super important to patients. Yeah, absolutely. And we kind of got into the numbers there. But in terms of sort of flipping the conversation to actually how much revenue can be generated by this technology, whether whether it's possible to put a figure on that. I mean, 
where where could we be in say three years time in 2024 for example what number could we put to revenue generated by ngs yeah so you know i think uh at arc we love numbers so i'm <laughs> always happy taking some numbers so we think that sequencing uh you know this isn't unique to sequencing though there are many different technologies will follow the price elasticity of demand so based on this adoption and the fact that we estimate that the cost of whole genome sequencing will decline this is estimating that it's going to decline to about $200 um then we believe that next generation sequencing revenues could go from 3.5 billion in 2019 to 21 billion in 2024 so quite a large difference and then for the CAGR or the compound annual growth rate that would be about 43%. So pretty wild. Um and that's following rights law. So, you know, this is of course we're we're assuming there's an increase in demand which we think will be important for a per patient basis, the decrease in cost which, you know, we're seeing but like I mentioned it's kind of slowing down, so it it needs to continue that kind of decrease in cost. And then of course the continued importance of next generation sequencing for personalized medicine. So as you can see next generation sequencing certainly has a large market opportunity to be captured but also very important to patients. We hope you're enjoying the episode. For interviews like this every Thursday, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, make sure you give us a star rating and leave guest suggestions along with any other feedback in the review section. Now, back to the show. Yeah, great. Okay, well I think we've done a very good job of summing up the potential investment opportunity or just the opportunity in general in terms of DNA sequencing but i want to move us on to the convergence of a few innovations ngs being one of them but i'd also like to touch on gene editing and ai as well uh, because arc and particularly within those big ideas reports as i mentioned earlier talk about a potential convergence of these technologies ngs gene editing and ai as i said Uh, and how the net effect of that convergence could actually transform biotech R&D efficiency. So if we start with with that general question I suppose to what extent is the convergence of NGS with other technologies like CRISPR gene editing and AI the real long-term investment opportunity here? Yeah, so really exciting. So NGS we talked a lot about um but just, you know, to reiterate, it could create fewer failure rates in trials, right? And that can make more efficient for you know R&D spend. So what can AI do then? So AI can reduce time to market. So as I mentioned with the Watson example earlier, people are using AI as a means to help with the proliferation of academic research. It's just too much for one person to consume and so relying or, you know, utilizing these decision support tools could help with parsing through some of that research um which AI can can really facilitate. um new developments and staying on top of things increase every day and it's challenging for physicians and research scientists. So AI is really being deployed to address these major diseases. It's trying to boost the efficiency in the healthcare system and it could increase clinical trial throughput because it could increase patient recruitment and retention. It could cut clinical trial timelines by more than half. So if we look at the publication volume for example of you know machine learning and deep learning papers on major diseases it's basically gone up pretty substantially since you know at least 2011 uh, it continues to rise as well so if we take the same sort of example as we did in ngs so time to market reduction if we look at 0% increase in time to market reduction 
then R&D costs stay at that $720 million uh, USD. But if we jump to that 25% time to market improvement, we then can see costs drop to about $610 million with AI. So we might get into this a little bit more later if you have more questions on it, but can you imagine if you add the effects of AI with NGS, uh, how much are costs going to drop? So that's pretty interesting. And then if we think about CRISPR, so CRISPR gene editing is going to allow for the promise of a potential cure for disease. Uh, Currently, we have 10 therapies that have been approved to date, um, and we anticipate that if we adjust sort of for this typical trial failure rate that we're talking a lot about, the potential commercialization could be about 170 new therapies in the next decade. Because as we know, we scour clinicaltrials.gov, which is essentially this database of all the clinical trials that are happening. um, And you can see that the trial rates are going up. um, And so there could also be this expedited commercialization of a lot of these therapies One, because the trial rates are going up, but two, because of what we're talking about here, which is that the convergence of these different technologies, AI, NGS, CRISPR, and maybe others, maybe, you know, academic literature searches, et cetera, um, is going to facilitate these trials um, and their commercialization in an even quicker pace. So CRISPR also has a higher sticker price, meaning that one dose of a CRISPR therapy, if it's a one-dose cure, um, some are not, obviously, um, are more expensive. But then if you average that out per life you're gained for patients, um, you could actually see that maybe it would be cheaper um, in the long term uh, if you average that out per patient life. Um, And it could obviously afford this promise of potentially turning diseases into cures. And, you know, obviously, as I talk about too much and have too much enthusiasm of but maybe even in an upstream approach eventually. So there's a company which essentially looks to correct a gene. Uh, One example is the PCSK9 gene. And what that does is it lowers LDL or bad cholesterol. And so that's what they're trying to do here, right? They're trying to lower that LDL. Um, And so if they edit that gene, that's the hope. Um, And so first, you know, they're looking at people with that specific gene then the approach is like, okay, now we're going to look for patients who are at risk for heart attack or stroke or have had a heart attack or stroke. And then the idea is like, okay, can we actually go where we look at population screening and we say, you know, who's at risk for potentially having the gene or potentially having an event? Um, and what I think is really interesting is that takes us to an upstream approach. So I'm really excited um, about some of the potentials of, you know, gene therapy and gene editing for the future. Yeah, absolutely. And that uh, company example there really helps to make things less abstract. I wonder whether there's another company example, uh, maybe you can make reference to a particular treatment where they are converging both AI and CRISPR gene editing, for example, you can pick two of the technologies or even all three, uh, just to make it, yeah, as I say, a bit less abstract uh, for, for the listener so they can actually see how this plays out in, in, in real life. Certainly. So I would say it is, it is definitely abstract. And even, you know, understanding CRISPR is probably a lot a challenge to most people. Um, CRISPR, if you're in a lab, just looks like a, a, a like a clear liquid. So I can imagine that it's, it's probably quite abstract and difficult for people to really kind of grasp. Um, 
I would say that most of our companies are actually employing all three methods. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's why we think they're investable and good opportunities. Uh, you know, in the example I gave, uh, they're obviously using CRISPR gene editing. Um, they're using base editing, which is a form of gene editing that doesn't do double-stranded DNA breaks, um, but it, it instead nicks one strand of the DNA. And that might be better for off-target editing, um, so that might be a little bit more complicated than you wanted. Um, but uh, so they employ obviously CRISPR. They also employ, you know, artificial intelligence. Um, another thing that we're really interested in companies that are employing AlphaFold, which is a neural network based algorithm that predicts protein folding. And so um, there will be a blog on that coming out soon, hopefully um, on the ARC website. So, you know, stay tuned for that. Uh, but the idea there is that, um, We've, we've seen research to suggest that that could reduce costs by 50% um, between when ideation phase and then also to the IND or the investigator new drug application. And so, um, you know, that would have a huge impact, especially since we know that 40% of all um, drug costs happen at those early phases. Uh, so, you know, that's pretty exciting. And a couple of our companies... They, um, they employ, uh, you know, some of these techniques, uh, some of these neural network-based algorithms, which can also reduce costs and are really important. So a lot of the companies that we look for, you know, we ask them about their utilization of these tools. Um, so we believe that if they are using these tools, they can employ, you know, failure rate reductions and time-to-market improvements. And so that's why uh, we invest in so many of these companies. So Hopefully that's helpful in making it a little bit less abstract, but yeah, we can go into as many examples <laughs> as you want as well. No, no, that's great. Um, those examples, yeah, do exactly that. They paint a really good picture of why this is so impactful. Um, and an- another thing I had down when I was doing my research, I noticed that you talk about the uh, optimization or improvement of net present value of clinical trial pipeline assets. So earlier on in the development phase, I suppose the actual pipeline assets are or, or at least their net present value is being improved. So that's, I guess, another effect or uh, implication of this convergence. Would that be fair? And perhaps you can give us uh, an example of that actually occurring in real life. Yes, I can. So basically, I think one of the ways you can think about this is that we model clinical trial pipelines very differently than, than some other analysts. Um, and so the the sort of way you can think about it is that you know, whoever else, we'll just say, uh, could be using past throughput rates to determine future ones. Um, but you could be really missing the advancements in these technologies and how those are going to contribute to better efficiencies. So, for example, if you look at, um, you know, some of our blogs on the website, we've outlined it so that you have status quo, which is whoever that is using you know, these, these past throughput rates to determine future ones. And then you have sort of the arc expectation. Um, and you can see that if you use the past throughput rates to determine future ones, at every stage, the NPV is going to be lower than what the arc NPV will be. Um, so, you know, I can give like sort of a tangible uh, example here. So, you know, as we know, we have several phases in you know, clinical development, um, but also in discovery. So we have discovery in vitro, in vivo, toxicology, phase one, two, three, and registration. 
Um, and so, you know, phase one, so discovery in vitro and vivo technology, uh, toxicology are all going to be kind of uh, preclinical and then phase one, two, three and registration will be clinical with patients. Um, and you can see that, you know, in discovery, uh, you know, the NPV, let's say for status quo will be about 34 million versus 144 million if you use ARCS assumptions. Um, and that's going to be really the biggest change because we also have um, change in NPV from status quo to ARC. And so the discovery is a 4.3x change uh, for status quo to ARC. Um, and that kind of actually goes down um, in, once you get to kind of the other stages, right? So it goes from discovery 4.3x change to, you know, registration where you're at basically like a 1x change. And we think the reason is because as you go through the stages of clinical trial development, you know, from early discovery to actually getting into the, you know, the clinic, um, there's, there's a bit more of certainty that something will work, or maybe certainty is too strong of a word, but there's more of a probability that it will be successful. So when you're in discovery, you're like, we don't know, this is kind of interesting. Let's see what happens. And then you're, you know, doing experiments in the lab, you're doing experiments on animals, um, and so at all those times, there's, there's kind of like, we think this is interesting. We have a good thesis for this, but we really don't know. So it's really when you get into the clinic with phase one, you're not actually looking at efficacy at phase one. You're really looking at safety and tolerability and what's the maximum tolerated dose you can give to people. And so as you continue through that path, you say, well, okay, we're at phase two. Um, and if you look at like a phase two, for example, the status quo would have like, you know, a 485 million uh, versus ARC that has 932. Uh, so, you know, a little bit of differentiation, but obviously not as vast as it is in the discovery phase. And we think people are missing out on those discovery assets uh, because maybe, you know, they're worried that the probability of success is too low. But, you know, it's also where you get pretty good, um, you know, deals in terms of, you know, the expectation. So we think that's baked into a lot of the stocks. And so we think sometimes investors are missing these early assets. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's why I picked it out. I think it's, well, it sounds at least absolutely crucial to sort of arcs. Uh, investment process and research process, particularly within this space, and it allows you to access growth stories earlier on in in the development phase. Um, and as you say, a lot of other uh, asset managers, uh, fund houses out there, we won't name names, are potentially missing out mm-hmm. um, and not truly uh, understanding the value of some of these companies. So uh, I thought it was a really important point, and you've explained it perfectly. So what does the process look like starting from the initial identification of a company through to its inclusion in the art portfolio? So we do tons of vigorous research, as you can imagine. We'll look at things like the company's scientific mechanism of action. We'll look at just their general science. We'll look at the research. We'll do a market landscape analysis where we figure out, is this the best approach? What diseases are they going after? Will they be first to market? you know, every kind of um, market landscape research that you can think of. Uh, We also want to understand the disease of interest. How many patients is this going to go to? What's the patient journey look like? You know, sometimes we think a medicine sounds really interesting, but we're like, wow, the patient is going to have to come in, you know, every other week uh, or they're going to have to have, 
you know, surgery before this. So we, we like to think about how the patient is going to fit into this and, and how, you know, their life will change from this for better or for worse. Um, we like to meet with the uh, management team. We like to understand sort of the dynamics of the team. We like to understand where they've come from, their knowledge base, but also how they'll interact with the rest of the team. Uh, and that goes into sort of people management and culture. Uh, we like to think about if they could execute on what they're trying to do um, and if their timelines and their projections are realistic. We also like to focus on moat, which is, you know, what is their sort of competitive differentiation and can they, you know, keep that up? As I mentioned earlier, we like to see precipitative cost decline. We like to see a disruptive innovation focus. We like to focus on a five-year time horizon. So there are so many factors that come into play when we're thinking about how we can get a company into a particular portfolio. Um, but, you know, all this comes together uh, and typically based on all these factors, we'll, we'll make a decision. Um, and then obviously, you know, the last thing I'd mention is that there has to be a sustainable business model. Um, we have to have a financial model that we think makes sense. And then we also have to have, you know, a high CAGR. Um, so the expectation that we can really get the returns on the investment. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, I think that does a really good job. Uh, one of my follow-up questions were going to be, you know, what consistent fundamentals or characteristics, more qualitative characteristics, I suppose, do you look for in the potential portfolio constituents? But uh, you mentioned stuff like uh, economic moat, for example, CAGR in terms of growth rate. So that gives us an idea, I guess, of the portfolio constituents, the ones that make it through the filter. But what about the companies? that don't make it through that filter. There might be a company that you're really excited by, uh, you know, you're convinced that they can make positive change, but ultimately they don't meet the team's investment criteria. I, I just wondered sort of purely out of curiosity, really, like, you know, how how frequent is is that that use case? Does that happen a lot? And are there companies that perhaps you've got on your watch list that you're hoping do come to meet those investment criteria further down the line? That certainly does happen. So, you know, there's a lot that goes into having a company go into the portfolio, as you can imagine, and as we just talked about. So, you know, there are companies that, you know, maybe for an example, they have a super interesting tech, um, but they just don't have a sustainable business model. So an example, um, you know, maybe it's a really interesting new cell therapy uh, that we think maybe could have some efficacy, but you know, and maybe we think it could even be effective for patients. But if this company is not able to scale, is not able to manufacture the process, if they're going to have tons of regulatory hurdles because the process is just so complicated and, you know, getting a GMP certified manufacturing process is going to be really, really challenging for them, it may not matter that the tech is so interesting because it needs to both be interesting, you know, have a promise of efficacy. Uh, and then also have an ability to commercialize. So sometimes there's one of that element, sometimes there's two, and you know, hopefully and excitedly, sometimes there's three. Uh, so I, I think you know, that can sometimes be a challenge where you know, it's a super interesting tech, we want to learn more, but how, how does this business model work and, and how does it get sustained can sometimes be a challenge. Yeah, absolutely. I guess the meeting of two halves of your brain, I suppose, the academic sort of passion for the technology and the work they're doing on that side of things versus what actually makes sense within a holistic portfolio. Um, I wonder then, you mentioned uh, five years just now as, as a potential timeframe over which you, you look to see whether a company can perform uh, and you know its technological development can actually take place. Um, I think five years 
if we were to put a moniker to that would be medium to long-term, if not properly long-term. So is it a long-term investment in your opinion? Certainly, yeah. So I think we we definitely are long-term time horizon. Uh, we're definitely long-term investors. Um, you know, our, our investment is usually, you know, five to 10 years. Um, and we focus on companies that we really believe in, you know, based on all the factors. We do a ton of due diligence and research. And so we really believe in the companies that we invest in. And so, yeah, uh, I think that kind of leaves it off there. But <laughs> yeah, it's certainly long-term uh, investors and, and, you know, certainly with a long-term time horizon that we just get excited about those technologies and seeing where they go in that time frame. Yeah, absolutely. And having done all of that work and research into a company, your convictions unlikely to change over the short term. So that makes complete sense. A final question before we move on to our quick fire question round then is, and I like to ask this to domain experts uh, when they come on the show. I guess, is, is whether they've got a particular stock that could be classified as a favorite. Maybe it's in the fund right now. Maybe it's on a watch list and it's not met your investment criteria. Is there one that sticks in your mind particularly that, you, that you're particularly excited about, I suppose? Well, that's like asking someone who their favorite child is. <laughs> so um, that's hard for me to do, but I can, I can give an example or two of things that I'm excited about. So I focus on technology when I think about these companies um, and what the promise of that technology is. So one example I would give is Intelia. They are a pretty interesting company. Uh, they have shown the promise of in vivo gene editing. So there's there's two separate ones. Ex vivo is basically the engineering happens outside of your body versus in vivo, where the engineering will happen inside your own body. Um, and they're really the first to show this in vivo gene editing to the liver. They showed this in June. I remember because I was on vacation <laughs> and it was a good reason to come out of vacation. So it was fantastic. But uh, they showed in vivo gene editing to the liver for their TTR trial. Um, and it was just really phenomenal to see that these therapies could actually really help patients. And so obviously from all those examples, you can see that one of sort of the, the areas I'm most interested and excited about right now is gene editing. And could we actually edit out genes that cause disease? And why that fundamentally will change the world, I believe, is because instead of treating a chronic therapy with saying, let me give you medicine, and that will sort of not actually correct the disease, but it will you know, curtail your symptoms. So you won't feel that headache. You won't feel those symptoms, but you know, that disease is still there. So it can manage your symptoms, but it doesn't change the fact that you have that disease. So, you know, this is all promise. And of course I would caution you all to A, do your own research, but B, um, you know, that these are new technologies that we need to ensure are safe um, and have good efficacy. But if they do, the idea of being able to get rid of a disease to cure a disease is just so exciting to me that I'm really excited to see where the field goes in the next you know decade and then to see hopefully positive results. But you know, again, a cautionary note that we don't know what off-target edits or or what will happen in the future, but still still exciting. <laughs> yeah, no, incredibly. You're completely right to put that caveat on there, but Nonetheless, an extremely exciting space and certainly one to watch. Okay, well, let's finish up with our quick fire question round. So this is a more generic list of questions that I've slightly tweaked to relate to, to genomics and, and biotech at large. 
Uh, the first one being, what is the top mistake, do you think, made by biotechnology investors? So this may be boring because we've talked about it before, but I, I really do think underestimating that value of those early stage pipeline assets uh, is a mistake. Also, lowering the expectation for NPV of clinical trial assets, as we've mentioned, I think that's a mistake. Uh, you know, typical biotech investors, they only model a few assets and then they give those a probability of success. Um, they don't focus on all the assets. I think it's important um, to focus on all the assets because we believe that then you could be missing the mark. You could be leaving out things that have the potential of success. There are also things that R&D is being spent on. So you might as well account for them. Um, and then, you know, I also think that other investors don't realize how much you learn from failed trials. We never want to have a failed trial. That's that's never sort of the, the hope or the goal, but it's it's an inevitability, mm -hmm. right? It's going to happen. And so sometimes you learn a ton from, from a trial that's failed and maybe you realize that that was the wrong patient population or that was the wrong target. And unfortunately, it's a costly mistake, but sometimes it, it has a lot of value, um, to lessons learned. So I think those are some of the things that I think would be helpful. And, and that's a restructuring of, of how you think about investing in general in biotech. So that may take time, but we really think that, you know, based on these new technologies, biotech investing is probably, or biotech investments might be undervalued right now. And so that leaves an opportunity on the table. So that can be exciting. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's an incredibly important point. Um, well, let's go to question two then as part of our quick fire question round. Where do you go? I mean, we've already established as part of this interview, I think that it's so crucial for people to really read up on this stuff. There's a lot of risk involved um, and a lot of therefore independent research that needs to be done to properly understand the opportunities within this space and within this industry. So where do you go personally for industry specific news and insights? Do you read specific publishers, for example? So I've been asked this question a lot and I always preface it with, well, I think that I have my own very specific tastes um, <laughs> that maybe wouldn't be everyone's flavor. So I think, you know, a lot of biotech investors um, and biotech enthusiasts maybe even, you know, go to things that are that are very informative and helpful, like Stat News or Endpoints, which are publications, um, you know, that kind of break down the biotech news. Um, I think, you know, aggregators that really help with, with you know, getting those, those biotech quick points out there are really helpful. And those are two particularly good ones. Um, if maybe you have some scientific background, I think going straight to the source. So going things like Nature, Cell, New England Journal of Medicine, Science, uh, those are really helpful because, you know, you're not waiting for, for news outlets to capture those and to explain them. You're, you're going straight to the source. So you're getting them in real time. And so I think that can be really, really helpful. Um, this may be super particular to me, but I love reading books. So I don't like Kindles and iPads in terms of reading. Um, I love having like a real book. Barnes and Nobles is one of my favorite stores. Um, I, I may be alone in this, in this endeavor. I hope I'm not. Um, but I love real books. And so uh, anytime that I can read one or a couple books at one time, I usually try to do. Currently, I'm reading a book called Editing Humanity by Kevin Davies. I think it does a really great job of explaining CRISPR, where it came from, uh, legacy, other gene editing technologies, you know, zinc finger nucleases, tail proteins. 
um, you know, next generation uh, CRISPR enzymes and how they're going to interact with increased functionality. It's been a pretty great book. Um, I just ordered a few new ones today um, and I get, I get too into it. I was like, oh my God, my Amazon <laughs> is, is, you know, going a little nuts, but um, that's, I guess that's the problem with online shopping in general. Most people are, are looking at dresses and I'm just have like 300 books in the cart, but um, yeah, I, I love reading sort of the the real book and and having that on hand. I think another great resource is also Twitter. So all the ARC analysts are on Twitter. We post, um, but as well having that community where you can interact um, with other you know scientists, investors, biotech enthusiasts is really helpful. Um, it gives us feedback on sort of our process and you know maybe something we missed or something we didn't think about, which I always really appreciate and love. Um, but also you know lets us know uh, other people's perspectives. And it's always great to not only focus on what you're seeing, but to be challenged. Um, and once you're challenged, you can say whether, you know, uh, whether how, how you defend your argument. And then that's always really helpful for me because if I haven't thought about something in a certain way um, and someone brings it up, I'm like, wow, okay, that's a good point. Um, so that either strengthens your argument or maybe makes you rethink it. So I love that interaction. So that's another great way to uh, to find some news and also, um, you know, get more uh, interaction. We also have been posting on Medium, uh, which is a great resource for people to post, you know, work in progress blogs that they're that they're working on. Um, so I posted recently two blogs on there, um, basically about sort of CRISPR gene editing, some newer approaches like base and prime editing. Um, it, you know, I think those are some some resources that I use that I really like, but, um, you know, always happy to to get new ones. So if you hear anything, Hayden, let me know. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, I will do. And actually, um, we'll, we'll post a few of those links uh, in the episode description, certainly to those Medium articles, and then as well, just to your Twitter handle, because I think there's some great stuff on there. And obviously, you repost uh, and share other useful uh, bits of content on there as well. So I think that would be a good place to start for our listeners. Um, well, I think that brings me to our final question then, which is more generic. This is something that we ask to everyone that comes on the show. If you could go back in time, what would be a top tip that you would give your younger self? Okay. So funny enough, someone asked me this last week. Uh, <laughs> one of my friends was saying that he went on a date and he has like a few date questions. And uh, one of them is, what would your top tip to your younger self be? So I actually thought about this a little bit. Uh, and I said that I put a ton of pressure on myself and I also, every time I'm in a position or I'm, I'm thinking about things, I'm thinking, you know, five, six years out. Um, and maybe that helps, you know, cause that's kind of our investment strategy now, but I've been doing this my whole life, you know, thinking very futuristically. And I guess I have not had a linear trajectory in terms of a career, uh, and I think that's been really helpful for me because all of the skills that I've learned have become crucial to me doing a good job uh, in my day to day. And so I guess to people listening, if they're in school, if they're in a position they don't like, um, if they're trying to think about where they could go, I would say don't put so much pressure on yourself, but instead learn and, and become like a sponge so that every skill you're learning, whether it's you know, how to scrub the floor properly, you know, in, in the future, maybe you'll invest in, in, a, in a cleaning company. And it'll be really helpful to know how to scrub the, the floor, you know, in the best way you could. Anything you can learn, just, just soak it up. 
Um, and I would also say be kind, um, which maybe sounds like a silly one, but um, the kinder you are, the more that comes back to you and also helps make the world a better place. Um, and so I think that one's an important one. Um, not that I was not <laughs> kind to my, you know, when I was younger, but I just think that's something that I've seen uh, at ARC. That we have a great culture and I think that's really helpful from a work perspective, but also just in your life. And also don't feel like, don't feel nervous or afraid to reach out to people. Um, I know that when people reach out to me asking for advice or anything like that, I always try to do it. I've reached out to some, you know, way senior people and they're always really kind with their time. And so I think, you know, go for the job you didn't think you could get. Um, be kind to where you are in your current sort of position. Learn everything you can. Be a nice person and also feel free to reach out to people that you think may not answer because if they do, it could be worth that sort of reach out and uh, taking that sort of step to do it. Yeah, no, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. I mean, what, what an answer to the third quickfire question. I think that's a really nice place to end on, actually. And that just leaves me to say thank you very much for joining us on the podcast, Ali. It's been a real pleasure. Of course. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening, everyone. Just a quick note before we sign off. If you're looking for an easily digestible daily update on the markets, this might be of interest. Opto Updates is our short newsletter sent every day during the trading week, giving you a bulleted list of the top seven stories from the global stock markets. We've done the hard work for you, highlighting relevant opportunities and trends. And in addition, we'll also keep you notified of any new products, stock reports or webinars from the Opto world. If you're interested, sign up using the link in the show notes. And thanks also to CoFruition for consulting on and producing the show. Until next time. Co-fruition.